0: I was photographing a Ranger game, and this this guy in a business suit came up to me and said, I'm Anthony, I'm here to pick up your film, and I thought he was joking because it's not typical that you have a, a, a messenger, no offense to the messenger at the time, most of them would just, you know, dress casually, but he was in a business suit. He was actually coming from, he was working in a bank during the day and wanting to do this at night where he just was trying to break in, but he didn't force it. He was just, he was just happy to be part of it.
1: I watched him run the New York City Marathons um, in November, and I would tell him where I would be, you know, and we used that location tracking app so that he would stop and take photos with me. And then later on, when I had my daughter, we would both wait for him and he would just stop and take a picture and smile. We were very competitive, and we took a sports writing
2: class together with a bunch of guys. And every morning we'd have a trivia test by this, well-known sports writer, just quite a character. And Jenny would beat the guys in all the questions, particularly on baseball. And we would have such fun with that. I memorized all the heavyweight boxing champions to <laughs> make sure I <I'd>, beat <laughs> everyone on that quiz.
3: <laughs> One of the pieces advice he gave me early on when I kind of stumbled into education reporting was not just to listen to people, but to listen to children. And he said, you know, whenever you're in any, kind of situation about education or other things, listen to the kids, because they'll talk the most freely and they won't bullshit you and they'll be the most honest.
4: Both of our counties, uh, the interstate ran through them. And so we meet in a a kind of a grimy gas station cafe, sometimes on the side of the interstate for coffee.
0: Hi, this is Charles Wenzelberg, photographer with the New York Post. I worked with Anthony Causey for upwards of over 25 years. Honestly, it's hard to describe Anthony Causey in 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour. It would take days really to really understand him. He he had this, he had the most wonderful disposition. He was able to, he, he was able to read a room and immediately, um, make people feel comfortable he he was but not in a phony way he was very real he was and and that was that was his superpower he was so real and and he he gained people's trust not by not by forcing anything and he never looked to to gain someone's trust to get a picture to to do, to get something for himself he just he was just anthony he loved life he loved people he was naturally curious and and people felt that about him they didn't feel threatened you know athletes who are very guarded Celebrities who were very guarded, you know, they would talk to Anthony as if they knew him forever. He mm-hmm. just had this wonderful way about him. In 1996, digital cameras came on the scene, and I spoke to Anthony. Anthony and I had gotten very close over the previous year or so, and both, you know, we were both around, both a lot of things in common. So we we kind of bonded. And I said to him, I said, "Listen, the messenger days are over with this digital camera. It's time for you to like." you know, start taking some pictures, trying to get your work published. And, um, he asked me if he can edit, if he can learn how to edit, learn the processes, you know, he and I actually learned Photoshop together. Yeah. And he, um, so he, he transformed, he adapted to the, to to the current situation where he wasn't bringing film in anymore, but now he had learned to edit digital pictures and caption them, send them back to the office. What I can tell you is, is that he loved taking pictures. He loved taking pictures of himself. He loved, he loved being the guy to tell everybody, get together, let's take this picture, let's let's remember this moment, let let's mm-hmm. let, let's enjoy this. And and he, that was part of his his gestalt, where he would he he would be th- like this big guy, this larger than life guy, in a lot of ways intimidating because he was a big guy, he was um, martial arts expert, but he was like a teddy bear. And I think the camera gave him um, almost like a buffer between him and his subject in a lot of ways. Literally, we traveled together so much. We, we were intertwined, our lives intertwined so much that it's a deep sense of loss. Like, yes, I mean, he was my best friend. We, we did everything together um, in a lot of ways. I mean, my, I started my family before he did. He started later. Um, he, he has a wonderful family. Um, you know, listen, a- a- so many people will say the- they explain their friends larger than life. And, mm-hmm. you know, Anthony was that guy. He was really I mean, you can see the outpouring of love that after he passed and even when he was in the hospital, the people who were rooting for him and, and trying so hard to keep him going and, and like get through this thing. And um, he really was the guy who was larger than life. And people truly no I, literally, I thought he would outlive everyone I knew
5: mm-hmm.
0: because I always think of Anthony as my little brother um, he I mean he's the closest person to me I, I know some other people who have who've who've passed from it and um, some of them older, but no one as young as he and that's that's I think the tragedy of this is that you go through your whole life and you you make decisions about not smoking you know trying to be healthy and and this thing just grabs whoever it grabs, and you, you just don't know what the outcome is going to be.
1: Hi, my name is Barbara Ortiz. I'm a technology reporter for the Associated Press. And I worked with Nick Giustianan for 15 years. I joined the AP in New York in 2005 as a finance reporter And uh, I don't remember the first time I met Nick because he was always sort of there, but um, we became friends pretty early on, even though um, he was a technology reporter and he'd been there a while. And I was just a young finance reporter, basically uh, rewriting press releases and writing briefs. Um, We had a lot of um, outings back then in New York, and he was always up for a night out with with the New York, um, young New York reporters. He always knew so much AP history and stories and just was a lot of fun and warm person to be around. A few years later, um, I actually started working with him when I joined the technology team and, uh, you know, I, I didn't know anything about tech when I joined. Um, even though I was interested in the technology world, I didn't know much about it. And Nick was just a constant, um, figure that who was so patient and explained everything and never made me or any of any of the other young reporters feel um feel stupid for not knowing something. And he also made it seem like he, we were um we were finding answers on our own instead of him telling us, which was um, you know, the sign of a really good good reporter. And this was before my time, but Nick uh, when the AP was setting up um technology coverage and the technology team. Um, the editor was Frank Bayek and they, they made Nick the APs first and only internet writer, nobody else before him or after him had that byline. And I think it's uh very fitting because his knowledge was just incredible and he would know stuff about obscure things that, you know, I, I feel like before him and after him, nobody else did. So the rest of us, um, are technology writers, but, uh, he carried the internet writer byline twenty years ago, mm. which is new back then. He always related it to regular people. He was not writing esoteric tech commentary, or and he was not writing for blogs. He was first and foremost an AP writer, and he wrote for the AP's audience, which is everybody. Mm-hmm. So you know. He explained everything. He didn't, you know, he didn't look down on readers who might not know some something about technology, even very simple things. He, you know, sometimes we joked that he had us explain things that people should know. We had to, for years and years, we had to define what Twitter was because mm-hmm. not everybody knows Twitter. We still do. We had to, you know, early on define what social media is. He was just very careful and meticulous about really small details. He did a lot of tests, um, but they weren't so much reviews of, of gadgets and things, but they were, you know, they were just telling people about them and, and how people might use them, but also how they might be problematic. Mm. Um, and this meticulousness helped him and led him to find problems where other people might not have found them. And also just weirdness, you know, a lot of his stories were really quirky. Mm. Like I have a story. I, I was just looking, um, and stories he wrote um and i'm sure you guys know he traveled a lot but he also used his strips to um to write stories for the AP and i think one was on the one was on the kindle and he tried to take the kindle on one of his trips to europe but then he wrote i quickly came to realize what i like most about paper books i can touch the pages i can see more at once whether it's a map or text or a combination and he said he missed all that on the Kindle, which was clumsy by comparison. So just because he was a technology person, he was not, you know, he did not worship technology. In fact, quite the opposite. And from super early on, you know, when nobody was thinking about tracking and, and privacy issues 20 years ago, and he he wrote about how um, your devices are going to track you and track your location and what happened. Mm. He loved New York, and he loved exploring New York. So, um, you know, I I'm not a runner, but he was a huge runner. So, we did the polar bear swim um, in Coney Island one year. He would he would try anything. Um, he was up for anything. Me, we, we took a trip to Puerto Rico with a few friends one year, um, and we camped on the beach
5: mm-hmm.
1: in in Culebra on a little island. Um, the field the Philharmonic in the parks was was one of his favorite. Um, things to do in the summer, movies at Bryant Park. He, he enjoyed the world and he enjoyed New York mm-hmm. just, just so much that he just had such a rich life outside of, outside of the AP. And he took classes, you know, he, he, I remember, you know, something he would have to run out of work sometimes and he like, Oh, I'm going to a math class. I'm going to my math class. Oh, I'm going to my photo class. Okay, great. <laughs> See mm-hmm. you. The marathons and everything. He was incredibly healthy. Um, and I remember he he got sick very early on, right right when our office is closed down in, in, in March.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm not saying we didn't take it seriously, or he didn't. He did incredibly, but nobody, especially at that time when we were told that you know old people were more susceptible to this, a, a marathon runner who is who is in their prime. We had no doubt that he would be okay.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: I remember even getting a little annoyed that he was taking so long to get better because he wasn't coming back to work and and we had relied on him so much over the years that that even him being out for two weeks was just what do we do? Nick's not here and uh you know, I was texting him the whole time and and he was feeling better and I remember you know i was so uh, <laughs> I was so relieved because he told me he wanted pork buns and he was hungry and and that was always a thing in the office we he would bring us all uh, bring his friends in the office pork buns and then um and then our, our on on april 1st we were texting because some you know he still wasn't back and he told me that he had a setback and uh you know, so I said, well, okay, call the doctor. And can you call your doctor? Can you, can you, can I send you a thermometer? Like, what, you know, I, I don't know what to do. And then th- that was our last text. And then the ne- next day he, the next day um, he went into the ER. And I think it was uh, 13 hours later, he was gone. And it was just really sudden. And, and he was so healthy and he always donated blood. And, you know, we were even talking about how he donate plasma once he recovered. And mm-hmm. so it was just a complete, complete shock.
2: I'm Helen Fallon. I'm president of the Press Club of Western Pennsylvania and a professor emeritus at Point Park University. I've known Jenny Frizzy since we were college students many years back, and we kept up all our professional relationships and as met with the memberships in journalism organizations in Pittsburgh and beyond. We started college together, didn't know each other in 1971, Mm -hmm. and uh, were spurred on, obviously, as we progressed there through Watergate, you know, scandals and um, just a passion and a drive for journalism that we just inherited. She she was a news hound. Um, We were all very competitive back then. There were tons of us who went into journalism at that time. And we were both print newspaper people, definitely. um, And just, you know, we're kindred spirits, definitely Mm -hmm. in the profession. She was very an an avid freelance writer. Um, She worked for Creator Syndicate and was prolific with her freelance work, mostly in lifestyle feature articles. She had a, you know, always had her hand in things. Um, And she was always the person, you know she was a the go-to person for journalism in Pittsburgh she was uh, a leader in the spj chapter we have the second oldest women's press club in the country in Pittsburgh um, she was also in women in communications and our press club of Western Pennsylvania what what really I think um, to me what i always remember is that she would be quiet about her advocacy but freedom of information uh, was a very big cause of hers the other passions were making sure you know we both came from working class families here in pittsburgh so you know paying for college was really very difficult so um, our paths crossed often when we were working on scholarships she always wanted to make sure that journalist work was you know was always recognized um, mm-hmm. And the other part, um, accuracy, you know, would, would really would get her ire up for, uh, you know, charges against the media, you know, so we're just doing our job. We have to do these types of things. And I think her SPJ colleagues would agree. She mm-hmm. was always, always an advocate for journalists and their work in mm-hmm. many, many ways. She had had something that happened uh, that caused her to go into the hospital, and that was rectified, but she had been weak. So we hadn't seen her since the beginning of the year. And um, unfortunately, you know, her health issues took such a turn for the worse and she fell when she was in rehab, hit her head, had a brain bleed, had to have surgery. So at that point, we could not be in touch with her and then COVID hit. And I think that was the biggest frustration. We'd send cards, we'd get word from her sister, but no one could visit her, no one could find out what was going on. And then it was just a steady downfall back and forth between the hospital and a nursing home here in Pittsburgh. And that's when she contracted uh, COVID
5: mm-hmm. and
2: passed away.
3: My name is Steven Thrasher. I'm a professor at Northwestern University. And I was edited by Ward Harkavy at The Village Voice. And he became my friend and mentor for the next decade. I was initially on a fellowship for journalists of color and then was hired as a staff writer. And I was very excited and extremely intimidated in my first meeting with Ward to go over story ideas. Because I had been reading him, I think, since maybe 2003 or four when he started writing the Bushbeat column about George W. Bush and mm-hmm. the Iraq War. Um, and so I had, I had been reading him for a long time. He didn't like any of them. <laughs> um, but uh, and, and, and in recollection, I don't think that they were very good either. Uh, but he told me in that meeting, he said, you're a personable guy. Just, just talk to people and listen to them and don't try so hard. And um, that was really good advice. Ward was the senior editor of the Village Voice at the time, uh, one under the editor-in-chief, and usually either he or the editor-in-chief would oversee the close of the paper and would edit my features when they were on the cover. He really helped me understand the difference between activism and journalism and how I wanted to often let people make the case for me in my stories, but he was very supportive. He, He edited one of my early viral stories called White America's Lost His Mind. And it was my first kind of polemic essay. Mm -hmm. And he also helped me understand that even when being polemic and opinionated, it can still be journalism as long as you're underscoring everything with the facts. Mm -hmm. And then he got ingloriously let go, as most of us did during those years. He was laid off, uh, I think about six months before me. And Ward was someone I, I did keep in touch with. He was an early user of all kinds of social media.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: He was a stutterer and was very involved, had been very involved with the stuttering community uh, since billboards in the 90s and like online billboards and online communities. I would sometimes show him drafts of things I was working on, even as I became an academic and started working on my dissertation. I would ask him for advice or he would give feedback when I was posting on Facebook. Um, and I, one thing I I remember very fondly about him is he would ask Sometimes when I wrote a piece uh, who edited it at the New York Times my editors Janae Desmond Harris mm-hmm. I would say that like, her editing is fantastic like go back to her ask mm-hmm. her you know ask her if she could look over you know when you write a book mm-hmm. um, he, he was really into craft and so he was one of those people I kept coming back to over time when I came into the Village Voice it was 2009 the Obama administration was beginning mm-hmm. and a piece that had helped me break through had been a piece I'd written for The Times about having a a black father and a white mother who'd had to get married in Iowa when interracial marriage was illegal in Nebraska. And when Iowa made same-sex marriage, I wrote about how I, as a gay man, could potentially go there to get married as well. Mm -hmm. So I was covering same-sex marriage ascending, the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I wrote a big cover story about Daniel, uh, Lieutenant Dan Choi. I was in Albany for the signing of same-sex marriage by the legislature and Governor Cuomo. Um, and so I was writing a lot about very personal things in my own life and Ward told me about his own. He was a a straight white man, but he had a really interesting, um, story, both as a, as someone who stuttered as someone who hadn't had children. I think he really kind of understood queer culture in a way. Hmm. He oversaw some of my early writing about HIV and AIDS, which has become a lot of my academic focus. Mm -hmm. And he had lots of friends who'd had and had died of, of HIV and AIDS, um, and so I learned a, a fair amount about his life. Um, he was also a secular Jew who was very kind of um, Talmudic and rabbinical in the questions he'd ask about life. And he edited uh, coverage I did about um, the role of Israeli politics within gay uh, the LGBT center and within gay politics in the U.S. So we talked a fair amount about our lives and about his upbringing. Uh, in Oklahoma as a son of a vet uh, in an extremely anti-Semitic um, part of the country mm-hmm. and then he had gone to Arizona to work for the early days of uh, New Times for Larkin and Lacey uh, and and he told me a lot about his own um, it, uh, issues with mental health and depression and things in his life and yeah we, we were pretty good friends. Ward was a prolific tweeter and Facebook person and we were, I think I had um, given a speech at the Bernie Sanders rally in Chicago and I had texted him right before I went on stage and then like a a couple of us noticed that we weren't seeing anything from him, Uh, he, he wrote back then but then we noticed we weren't seeing anything from him and so we were asking around And finally, somebody was able to find out that he was um, in a hospital, in an ICU on Long Island where he lived. And this was when hundreds of people a day were dying just in New York City alone of COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were very grateful to find out that he actually didn't have COVID. He was in the ICU for an unrelated reason. Mm -hmm. Um, But what was really frustrating and heartbreaking was that a number of us were trying to figure out... how can we get him care when he comes out? He um, didn't have any close family nearby. And this was when everyone was frightened and told not to go anywhere, like when we're very hard locked down. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to figure out how we could potentially get him some kind of care. But it just wasn't possible in his home then. And so he ended up going into a nursing home facility um, when he was recovering. And that's where he got the COVID.
4: Morehead, and I worked alongside Mike Conrad at the Tampa Bay Times for 16 years. I, I joined the Times in 2002 as a part-time editorial assistant, uh, very low on the ladder, in uh, the county next door to uh, the county where Mike was in charge. And a lot of times um, that would include stories that had an angle in uh, Mike's territory, or maybe I even had to go up there sometimes. Um, a lot of breaking news, a lot of cop stuff. Um, I also wrote religion features um, that that had an angle in both counties. And so Mike edited me a lot, and and mostly he was just the the primary resource for anything you needed to know at all about Hernando County. You call Mike. He had just incredibly clear eye for, uh, seeing the story, telling it in the clearest way, um, helping you sharpen your writing, you know, use strong verbs. He, he was very much, um, an adherent of the, of the classic rules of what makes good writing. Mm
5: -hmm.
4: I spent nine years as a reporter and then I went, um, over to the Times, um, fact-checking site, PolitiFact. Uh for a couple of years, I came back to um to my home county as the editor, and Mike, of course, had had been in his same position all along. But now, uh, really, we were peers; we were like counterparts. It was it was almost like not even noticeable. Um, Mike was such a professional, and I think that he just saw his role as helping people do their best work, and whether that was as a newbie writer or as a newbie editor. Um, So, but I never felt like there was a pecking order. It was just like, suddenly now Mike was a phone call away and I could call him to say, you know, which were these stories should I put in the lead on my section cover? Or, you know, can you edit this for me? I'm swamped. Um, And he did the same with me. Um, I, I think that maybe more than anything, boosted my confidence as a new editor and manager was that he asked me for help sometimes. Mike was a member of the um, orchestra in Hernando County. He played the clarinet. He was a huge baseball fan, and he also, like, I don't remember ever going to a staff party where Mike wasn't there. He was -hmm. was a really sociable, likable guy who loved the times and loved the people he worked with. He was, you know, for, for being such a great editor, he was not uh, you know the the crotchety newsroom grump, by any means he was he was everybody's friend,
0: you know often um, when um, when people pass and and they're remembered and obits are written, even even when a lot of people come forward to offer their memories, people who know them still say it didn't quite capture the thing that I loved most about this person or that was most special about this person. What is that thing? Do you think about Anthony that that you really want people to remember? First of all, Anthony, um, besides being a very gifted photographer, he was very kind. He would. I mean, literally, I mean, it was, he drove me crazy sometimes where he would stop and just offer to take people's photographs or uh, pictures of them. If they were doing a selfie, he would do it. Or if he saw someone in the stands, he would take a picture uh, of the people in the stands and take his personal time and send it to him. But Anthony also um, got involved with a company that, that used to work with kids who had cancer. Mm -hmm. And Anthony, um, you know, covered a story with them, I believe, and then just volunteered his time and, and, and made these kids feel wonderful. He was, he loved children. Like he was so happy that he started the family, he started a little late in life and he loved his family and his two kids who break, breaks my heart. But the thing that I, that people do not know about him is he he donated a lot of his time to, to causes for children who were had cancer and other things like that. You know, it's not something he, he you know, boasted to people. He just did it because it was the right thing to do.
1: Nick was a, a mentor in a way that people didn't know he was their mentor, and maybe didn't realize after he was gone. And just, I think, to always look, always look for weirdness, and to never give up your curiosity, because he never did. Um, he he covered the same thing for decades, and he always. Managed to find fun and humor in it. And he didn't do it for the glory or for the byline. He just did it because he wanted to put out good stories. And just the way that he related to everybody else. I mean, when he, we had his memorial at the AP, 600 people from the AP showed up. Um, and hundreds of them knew nick personally because they would ask him a question and he would answer not shoot you away like somebody else might would on their deadline but he would painstakingly answer your question he treated everybody with kindness
2: we competed for scholarships and contests Yeah, the same scholarship contest that we both helped lead for the women's press club Um, we would compete in, we would interview someone and write a feature story under deadline conditions. And one year, it was uh, Ginny and my college roommate and me, we all won it, it was uh, like a Point Park Grand Slam. And we went to it and we had to go to a uh, a very high-end financial club in Pittsburgh called the Duquesne Club. At that time, women had to enter through the back door. It was one of those kinds of clubs, and uh, we—she was the winner, and they gave the—they let the two, the Lorena and and I, be tied with it. But we made sure we walked out the front door that night. (laughs) You know, we just walked with purpose, and we just walked out the front door.
3: He was an old-school, smart-ass alt-weekly editor. Um, mm-hmm. And I often think we had, we shared a love of the movie Ace in the Hole, mm-hmm. the Billy Wilder black comedy about the circus of media. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a really sharp insight about what makes what makes good journalism and what, what the important things are that we need to focus on. He did it with incredible warmth and wit and... Very vigorous, sharp uh, insight. Um, two other things I would like to say about Ward that I wish people could know about him. His frustration with Trump was very well known. He'd been writing about Trump, I think, since the 80s or 90s. Mm. And he was also really good at looking at the whole picture and challenging liberals. And I think he would have been enraged in his final days, not just at Trump, which he was, but that he ended up dying needlessly in a nursing home. And that is, I think, at the foot of Governor Cuomo. The other thing I'd really like people to know about Ward was that he was an editor who oversaw writers for their lives. And I am not the only writer who only wrote for him for a few years, but was in touch with him for decades. There are a bunch of other people at the Village Voice for whom that was true. And when I hear people dismiss that, oh, you know, those who are dying of COVID, they're old, they're in their 70s, their 80s. Ward was in his early 70s. Mm-hmm. And to me, he is such an example, a painful one of what is lost that I think about what more did he have to teach me? What, what am I not going to get to learn from him? So I think the wisdom of a lifetime of alt-weekly editing and being able to help writers kind of find their best selves is something that's a big loss. And he did that very well.
4: So the biggest story that happened um, on my watch when I was the editor in Pasco County was a a shooting in a movie theater. Um, It was like a matinee on a weekday. And I was alone in the newsroom when I started hearing chatter on the scanner. There were no reporters, you know, nobody I could, you know, grab by the collar and send them out there. And I, I had a moment where I froze a little bit because um, I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't exactly know what to do. Uh, and I called Mike and he told me what to do. And I think he edited every other story in my section that day.